Have you ever uh, found it difficult to uh, believe in God? I, I know that uh, I have. Maybe you've uh, had some questions, and maybe they were historical or intellectual kind of questions, and the answer that faith gave to you just really didn't quite, you know, tell it all, add up. Maybe some of you have had some difficult experiences in your life, some struggles that you've experienced, and... Uh, They've been so difficult that they, they don't really kind of, you know, compute with what is a loving and a good God. It just doesn't seem to equate. Maybe there's prayers that you prayed over and over and over again, and they weren't answered. And maybe your story is one in which you kind of feel like that God let me down. He could have showed up in a particular situation and made things better, but he didn't. You know, during college, I was a uh, history major, and I had the opportunity to go to uh, different uh, countries that had different religions. And when I was in India, I actually was able to uh, go one day to see the Hindus worship one of their gods, uh, which is the uh, monkey god, uh, Hanuman, and uh, sitting there, or, or standing there, and kind of, I don't always hear God, I don't always experience Him, and sometimes, you know, the pain of relationships and suffering, and I'm so grateful to be a part of a church where it's okay for us to ask questions that are difficult, and for us to be real and open about the kind of issues that we deal with. But part of this kind of goes back to this question, well, God, why do we even have to talk about this in the first place? I mean, why is it that we have doubts and disappointments? I was talking with some friends of mine this week whose uh, spouse had lost a job, and I'm like, you know, God, why does that have to happen? I was talking to a friend of mine earlier today, and uh, he's dizzy all the time. He, he's constantly dizzy every single day. And he's getting ready to go through some operations to hopefully take that away. And this has been a year and a half. And I'm like, God, why? I mean, why is it that it can be so challenging and difficult for you and I to believe in the God of the Bible? There's a Christian writer by the name of Philip Yancey. He wrote a great book called Reaching for the Invisible God. I'd encourage you to read it. And in that book, he actually has a story of someone who wrote to him and talked about their struggle in actually believing in God. Listen to what the person wrote. I've been going through an enormously difficult couple of years. At times, it seems like I'm going to crack underneath all the pressure. All of this has shaken my faith in Jesus Christ, and I am still trying to pick up the pieces of a once unshakable faith. I look back at all I've said and done in regards to him, and I wonder, did I really mean what I was saying? I mean, how can I have faith in God when I'm constantly wondering, are you even there? I hear people praying for things, and that God told them this or that, 
But I often find it very difficult to relate to those spiritual things. I'm only trying to impress someone when I do, or I feel totally dishonest. It makes me sick to even think about. Have you ever been there before? Maybe some of you are there today. Maybe that's someone that you know or someone that you love. Maybe you carry all kinds of questions. Maybe you have tons of doubts. Maybe you find yourself going, gosh, I go to church and I pray and I read my Bible and I do all the things that you're supposed to do, but I almost feel like I'm not authentically expressing the true self of who I am. And if that's you, if you're in a season of your life where you're feeling disappointment or doubt or pain, you're at the right place. And it's okay. Sometimes in church, what we want is like real comfortable kind of answers. We want comfort without the cost. We want to feel certain about certain things and have certainty all the time. Folks, whether you believe in the Bible or not, I want you to know this morning that the Bible is not just for believers, but the Bible actually is for doubters as well. How many of you have ever heard of a guy by the name of Doubting Thomas or heard that phrase? Anyone ever heard that before? All right. Well, let me give you just a little bit of background on him. He was one of the original 12. He was a part of Jesus' inner circle. And uh, he had difficulty believing in Jesus. This is the scripture that we're told. Now, Thomas, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. Now, let me give you a little background. So, uh, Jesus has died on a cross. He's risen again. The tomb is empty. People believe that he's alive. And then all of a sudden, he kind of teleports himself right into the midst of the disciples. It's like, beam me up, Scotty. Beam me up, Jesus, okay? It's like he's right in the middle of it. I was with some friends this week, and have you seen these kids? They have like, uh, you know, this uh, video game where they have a headset, and they can be playing video games with all these people. And I see him uh, playing this game, and he's talking to something, but no one's around. And I'm like, someone just teleported, you know, like, Right in the middle of this. And this is what Jesus does. He teleports right in the middle of this group of disciples. But look what happens. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were and put my hand into his side, what's it say? Last four words. I what? I'll not believe. You're like, wow. Like, well, you know, Thomas wasn't there when Jesus teleported in, so I get that. But check this out. So the disciples see him multiple different times over the next 40 days. They see him, they recognize him, and he's with them, and he's ascending back into heaven. And Matthew, one of the disciples, wrote these words. He said this, when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some of them, what's the last word? They doubted. Like, I can get Thomas, he didn't see him. But the rest of them, they're seeing him go up into 
the heavens. And Matthew doesn't try to like, you know, wash this away. He doesn't write it out of Scripture. That's why I believe in Scripture so much. Because if you wanted to show to everybody that Jesus was the person, you would not put that in there. You would change it around. But the reason it's so authentic is because the authors are saying, even when they saw him, some of them doubted. I don't know about you, but I've actually had that thought before myself. I don't know if I can believe you in this, God, unless I experience you. I don't know, God, if I'm going to be able to believe you unless you show up in this particular way. So what's interesting is that for you and I, we have this tendency sometimes to doubt, but we're not alone. And the reality is, God gets it. In fact, it's our big idea for this morning, and it's this. God knows you have doubts, and it's okay. God is bigger than your doubts. And this morning, I want us to look at a book of the Bible in the Old Testament, the first half of Scripture, and it's a book that many times people don't read. You should be reading your Bible, but, you know, this is one book that people kind of skim by. And it's called Lamentations. And it's a whole book filled with questions and doubt and disappointment. And aren't you glad that you came to church today? Because that's what we're going to talk about. You're like, dude, it's Memorial Day weekend. Let's do... No, no, no. We, we need to talk about this. Now... Most scholars believe, and I'll put up some uh, background, most uh, scholars believe that it was written soon after the fall of Jerusalem, around 587 B.C. Now again, maybe some of you are just like new to this faith, or you're trying to figure it out. There are historical records outside of the Bible that lets us know that the fall of Jerusalem took place in that day. In fact, we find through some Babylonian records that there was a king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar who was powerful and young and he was a pagan and he wanted to literally systematically destroy Jerusalem and he did. Now Jerusalem had been in in many different wars before. There had been battles that had transpired before but nothing like the... You see when Nebuchadnezzar came in he actually burned the city. He burned it down. People were burned alive. There were men, women, and children who had died. God's temple, God's house, the place where God's presence was thought to be. He burned it down to the ground. The temple that King Solomon had built and had been different from all of the other world religions, that here is the presence of the Almighty God, not multiple gods, but the one true God. And now it is destroyed. It was the symbol. It was the sign. It was the source of faith. And now it's gone. So imagine for a moment that all you hold on to that reminds you that there is a God and that He could be trusted and that He could be believed in. Imagine that all of that is burnt down and destroyed. And that's what happened in 587 in Jerusalem. 
Now, the author, most scholars believe, was a guy by the name of Jeremiah who was a prophet or a pastor like me. And he experienced all of this, and so he writes this. And as he's writing it, there's kind of a theme that comes uh, out of it, and you can write this in for your next fill-in. That the theme is it's written by people who are not okay to people, or written by people who are not okay to people who are not okay, and for people who are not okay. In other words, when it was written, and those of us listening to it today, the reality is they weren't okay. Now, it all starts off very interestingly in Lamentations chapter 1, where Jeremiah says these words, Jerusalem, so so full of people, is now deserted. She who was once great among the nations now sits alone like a widow. Once the queen of all the earth, she is now a slave. She sobs through the night. Tears stream down her cheeks. Among all her lovers, there is not one left to comfort her. All her friends have betrayed her and become her enemies. Now, I thought I would just go ahead and read the first three chapters So that you could be depressed even more. But we're going to stop right there. Okay. You should read it later on. But we're going to stop there. Because you can't handle that much. I can tell you. Now. Lamentations is so different from other books in the Bible. Because many of the books of the Bible actually start out by saying. God you are great. You're awesome. You're magnificent. We're going to follow you. And then maybe a few chapters later. There's a few questions. But that's not how Lamentations goes. Jeremiah begins with this incredible kind of stark description of loss. He says once there was this crowded city, now nobody's there. It's empty. Once there was this powerful nation, but now it's a lonely widow. Once it was a queen, but now it's a slave. And then there's this description of loss, this sense of isolation, that they're by themselves. There's no one to comfort her. And if you read the first two chapters of Lamentations, one of the things that you'll see is five different times, this is what Jeremiah says. There's no one to comfort her. 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 Aren't you glad you came to church today? Have you ever noticed that when you're going through pain, you feel a sense of isolation? Have you ever noticed that when you're going through something that's difficult, and even if someone else can relate or they have some wisdom in your life, the reality is they're not walking in your shoes. And they fully can't grasp what you're going through. No one truly knows your story, your situation. And in moments like that, folks, we feel totally all alone. And so as Jeremiah is writing this, he simply asks a question. I think maybe the biggest question for you and I in life, and here's the question, God, how could you let this happen? God, how in the world could you let 
this happen? Have you ever asked that question of God before? Maybe it sounded something like this. God, how could you let my marriage fail? Why couldn't we stay married? God, could you have prevented this loss? Yes, you can. You're a God who can do anything. You could have prevented this loss, and yet you chose not to. I know you have the power. I know you have the ability, but you allowed this loved one of mine to die. Why didn't you come through, God? Why? God, I've been praying and praying and praying for this one particular thing. And it's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. It's not a selfish thing. It's actually something that could impact other lives. And I'm praying and I'm praying and I'm praying and you don't answer. Why? Jerusalem and all of Israel is facing this one particular question. God, how could you let this happen? Now, there are two main reasons, I think, for disappointment and doubt and pain in our life. There may be more than two, but there are two that are related to lamentations. And here are the two uh, disappointments or the reasons for disappointment. The first one is this. Sometimes it's self-inflicted. Sometimes it's self-inflicted. Jeremiah is very, very honest that when he gets to verse 8, he reminds Israel why Jerusalem has fallen because of their behavior. He says this. He says, Jerusalem has sinned greatly. So she has been tossed away like a filthy rag. All who once honored her now despise her, for they have seen her stripped naked and humiliated. All she can do is groan and hide her Israel is going to have to look in the mirror, take a hard look in the mirror of themselves. Because what you don't realize is that for decades upon decades, they have not been following the one true God, but they have been worshiping other gods. They have fallen into the sin of idolatry. They have worshiped a a stone God and a wood God, but they have walked away from the one true God. And they've stopped caring for their neighbors. And they don't care for the poor. And the politicians have taken over the religious faith. And there's corruption all over the place. And they're simply, these are the consequences of their actions. You see, God's covenant to Israel was, I will be with you and I will bless you, but you will be accountable for your choices. And and folks, that's the kind of the whole theme of Scripture from cover to cover, that you and I are responsible for our choices. Paul actually talks about this in the New Testament when he says these words, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. Let's all read this last sentence together, starting with the word people. People reap what they sow. Don't we hear that all the time? People actually reap what they sow. You don't even have to be a Bible believer and people understand this. What this basically is saying is that you can't somehow go and mess up and screw up big time 
and then hope that God's going to swoop down and everything's going to be taken care of and you'll have no disappointment, no pain, no discouragement. Folks, sometimes the pain we experience in life is due to our choices, our actions, our attitudes. Which means for some of us, the scripture is reminding us that before we start blaming God for whatever is going on in our life, we must actually look in the mirror and say, hey, is this self-inflicted? You know, it's not God's job, folks, to sweep down and to let you off the hook every single time you mess up. It's not God's job to fix whatever is front of you so that you won't be disappointed. Several years ago, when we first started the church, there was a uh, a woman who was a part of our church, and uh, the woman kind of got under my skin a little bit, and so this woman is here, and I just didn't vibe so well, so I went over here, and I talked to somebody over here about her. Now, don't look at me like, oh my gosh, I've never done that before. Don't lie on Memorial Day. And so I had this little talk, and we talked a little bit more, and talked a little bit more. And you know how it is. People who you talk to sometimes don't keep their mouth shut. And so they started telling, and it eventually got back to this woman. And at first I was like, well, I'm not sorry for what I said, even though it wasn't godly and it wasn't kind. But, you know, I wanted to power up on that. And then a few days led into a couple of weeks, and I started noticing that I'm getting further and further away from God, and my anxiety's kicking in, there's all kinds of stuff, and finally, in a quiet moment, I sense God say, you sinned, you need to make it right. And luckily, there were some leaders in the church at the time that when I shared my thing, they're like, Chris, even though it might be right what you're thinking, you're wrong in how you did that. And you need to make it right. And so I went to their house. I walked in the door. I asked for forgiveness. And it wasn't given. And this person and their family left the church. And to this day, it's not forgiven. I did everything I could do. But the reality is, folks, it would have never had to even happen. But I'm not blaming God. How was that? It wasn't God's issue. It was what? Self-inflicted. I caused this and I messed up. Folks, sometimes our doubts about God may be a way of us avoiding accountability for our own choices. Today, maybe you feel like, you know what, God's not in my life. But the reality is, there's a sin or a habit that is pervasive in your life, and you're not doing anything about it to change. And I'm telling you, God's not going to come down and swoop in and make that happen. Maybe you feel like God is kind of distant, and you feel like, you know what, I haven't been connecting with Him. And maybe for some of you, it's a piece of your life. You know, you're like, how could this happen to me? And yet, you haven't taken a strong look in the mirror to see where you're at. And Jeremiah said to Lamenta- or in Lamentations, he said, Jerusalem has sinned greatly. 
Folks, there is extreme vulnerability when you stand and you go, you know what, I messed up. I said this. I dropped the ball. I sinned against you. And yet the reality is, folks, when you do this, when you take this risk, I'll tell you, some of the closest moments I've ever had with God is when I owned up to my responsibility of not obeying and loving Him and loving the people around me the way that I should. And maybe what's keeping some of you from experiencing the fullness of God is that you have not confessed or admitted or gone to the person who you have talked about or hurt and tried to ask for forgiveness. It may not be returned back to you, but the reality is you could take the chance. So disappointment sometimes can be self-inflicted, but it's not always that way. Sometimes there's disappointment and pain and doubts that hit us, and the reason why is because sometimes there's no answer. Some of you are experiencing things right now where it's not self-inflicted and you can't find out a reason why it's transpired. Sometimes there's not a clear sense of consequence. Sometimes there's no kind of answer. Sometimes it just feels like, God, you know what? I'm doing my job, but you're not doing your job. And I'm going through all of this. And it's interesting because Jeremiah kind of felt that. He said, you know what, it's not just about Israel, but there's no answers to what I'm dealing with. God, I've been following you. I've been doing the right thing. And look what he says in Lamentations 3. I am the one who has seen the afflictions that come from the rod of the Lord's anger. He has led me into darkness, shutting out all the light. He has turned his hand against me again and again all day long. And he's like, God, I'm the prophet. I'm the pastor. I'm the only one who's been following you this whole time. And you're making me the laughing stock. There's no answer to this. I don't get it. I see the affliction, but I'm experiencing it now. Basically, he's saying, God, where are you? God, where were you when Jerusalem fell? It sounds like questions that you and I might have sometimes. God, where were you when I lost my loved one? God, where were you when I lost my job? God, where were you when I experienced this health issue? God, where were you when my parents got divorced? God, where were you when this prayer wasn't answered? God, where were you? You know, sometimes uh, I think many people have uh, this uh, impression that faith is about having the happy face. I'm happy. I'm in church today and I'm so happy. I'm so happy. I'm so happy. Aren't you happy? Let's all be happy because I have faith. And faith makes me so happy. And I'm going to put my happy face on. And I'm going to ignore all the junk that's going on in my life. I'm just going to be happy. Well, Jeremiah, he doesn't do this. He does not put on a happy face. In fact, it's some of the most graphic, accusatory language toward God in the entire Bible. He goes, God, you surrounded me with hardships. You shut down my prayer life. You made me the laughing stock. You weighed me down. You broke my body. You pierced my heart. You put me in darkness. 
Now you would think at this point that God would respond. And you would think that he'd come back down hard on Jeremiah. Because if you remember in the story of Job that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, when Job kind of spills out to God, God like gets directly in his face and says, what's up? But here, at the lowest moment for Jerusalem and Israel and Jeremiah, God's silent. Have you ever prayed a prayer to God or shared a concern and all you got was silence? In the early years of the jar, I uh, spent a lot of time trying to reach out to people and so I would go golfing. um, And uh, I'm not a good golfer, but I would meet people who are good golfers and then that always made them feel better about their game, you know? And so I would go out golfing, and I met this guy named Jared, and he was such a great guy. He was a really, really good golfer. And uh, Jared and I started to build a friendship together, and uh, he was far from God, um, but he was open to things of God, and so we talked and we connected, and he'd come to church every once in a while, but, uh, you know, wasn't fully convinced of everything. But then, you know, he, he was just a great guy, just one of those guys you like to hang out with, and he was an awesome uh, husband, uh, husband and amazing uh, father of three little children. And then one day I got a call from him, and I was assuming that it was about going to play golf. And uh, when he called, he said, hey, I've been uh, diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And uh, it's stage three. And uh, I said, wow, man, that's, that's tough. There's a picture of him and his family. And this was the first time in my life that there was someone who I knew really, really well, because we were exactly the same age, at age 33, that his life was in the balance. And so they did some treatment, and it actually went into remission, and that almost never happens with pancreatic cancer. And and he didn't drink, he didn't smoke, he didn't do anything for his cancer to come. And so I was like, oh God, that's why you've you've made this happen. You know, if if someone did a whole bunch of stuff and, you know, if they die, you know, it's all right. But God, you know, he hasn't done anything. And then it all came back. And it came back with vengeance. And on August 6, 2006, my friend died. And I prayed and I prayed And I prayed for him to be healed. And there were hundreds and hundreds of other people who were praying for Jared to be healed. And God didn't do it. And I was like, God, why did you allow this to happen? And I'll never forget going to his home to plan the funeral, and I walked on the back porch, and I was with his wife, Dareth, and there were these three small little children that you just saw up there. I was like, God, why? Why? There was no answer. Folks, I want you to know that his death rattled me for years and years. 
And after his death, I tried to reach out to his wife, Darith, and their three kids, but they were experiencing so much grief and so much pain and so much loss that they just kind of drifted away, and I lost contact with them. But every once in a while, I'd, I'd call or I'd send an email, and when Facebook came out, I became friends with Darith, and I would send something. But the doubt and disappointment just overwhelmed her. And when we got ready to move here to the Civic, I thought, you know what, we're going to, I'm just going to try one more time. And another uh, woman in our church who she worked with, which I didn't know at the time, she invited her as well. And so uh, in October, Dareth walked in and I was like, oh, I'm so glad to see you. And she's like, it was so hard for me to ever go back to the gym again because it was difficult for me to be there because that's where Jared and I had spent our connection with God. And I said, well, I'm so glad you're here. And, and so she came that Sunday, and, you know, I just kind of figured, well, it would be a kind of a one-and-done kind of thing. But then she kept coming back, like constantly, every single week. And then on uh, Easter, I noticed she was sitting, but she wasn't sitting by herself. There were all of these grown people around her. And on Mother's Day, there were all of these grown people. And those little kids, guess what? They grew up. And here's a picture of them right now. And they walked out. And they all gave me a hug. And they talked about how, even though they had struggled in life with different things, that there was something that God did in the midst of our friendship. That helped them not to lose faith. And when they walked by and they went to their cars, I just I looked and I said, God, that's what real faith is. That's what genuine faith is. You see, for the longest time, I used to always think that faith was like this warm, fuzzy thing that gave me certainty and comfort and everything that I needed. But the more that I've gone through life, folks, the thing that I've realized is that faith is that thing, that faith is not just an answer. Faith is a choice when we don't have any of the answers. Faith is not a feeling of trust. It's a choice that we make when we don't have faith to trust in anything in our life. You know, the book of Lamentations, it begins with questions and it ends with questions. And I hate to disappoint you, but on this side of life, folks, there are going to be some answers that you and I are just not going to receive. But in the middle of the book, Jeremiah realizes that faith is not this like fuzzy feeling, but that often it's in the midst of our doubt, it's in the midst of our disappointment, in the midst of our pain that the choice of faith is made. Look at these amazing words that Jeremiah says in, in uh, Lamentations. He said, The thought of my suffering and homelessness is bitter beyond words. I will never forget this awful time as I grieve over my loss. Yet I still dare to hope when I remember this. The faithful love of the Lord, it never ends. His mercies never cease. Great is His faithfulness. 
Folks, faith is not forgetting about the past or not remembering the pain that you and I experienced. But it is to focus your mind on the things of God when the circumstances in your life are totally messed up. It's a decision to say, the God who let this happen is the same God who loves me immensely and never walks away. The God who has not yet answered this particular prayer is the same God who has had compassion for me my whole life and has answered multiple prayers. It's a decision to say, the God who I cannot see in my circumstances today promises me that tomorrow His mercies are going to be new. You see, faith is not choosing to believe. Faith is choosing to believe when there's no reason to believe. It's choosing to trust when there's absolutely no reason to trust. And we don't do this blindly. We don't do this naively. We do this because this is what Jesus did. You see, 600 years after Jeremiah wrote those words in Lamentations, a carpenter came to earth and he had all kinds of horrible things that happened to him. And one day he's on a cross and he's looking down. He's like, Father, forgive them. But then he looks up and he says, God, you know, why have you forsaken me? Why did you make me a laughing stuff? He was weighted down by the cross. His body was broken. His side was pierced. He was put into a tomb of darkness and all of his disciples ran away and left him high and dry and he was all dead and done. Christianity was not ever going to come about. Jesus is in the grave and he's done. He's a fake Messiah just like the other ones. But three days later, God showed up. And his compassion didn't fail. And his love didn't fail. And his faithfulness didn't fail. Today, if you're going through something in your life that is not okay, this is what I want you to know. It's not the end. It's not the end. God is still writing your story, and it's not done. He's still working in your life, even when you can't see it. Today, if you have doubts, if you have struggles, if you have questions that you're dealing with, today, if you feel like God is MIA, missing in action, and He's actually become more of a hindrance than anything else, I want you to know that His faithfulness still remains. Because even when you're not faithful, He remains faithful because He cannot be false to Himself. And God is a great God. And he says, my faithfulness will not leave you ever. And I will never walk away. Let's sing to this great God. Please Yo 
God, how great you are. We lift your name up today above every other name. And God, today for some of us, it's hard for us to sing these songs because, God, we are haunted with doubts. We're haunted with the disappointment. We're haunted with pain that we're struggling with. And there are times when we pray that we wonder if there's anyone on the other side that is listening or caring or willing to act. And today, if it's not okay in your life, I want you to know that it's not the end. And the reason that we know this is because of the cross. That Jesus, you went through pain. Jesus, you went through suffering. Jesus, you know what it's like to have doubts. And yet, you still displayed compassion and love. And because of that, you can help us get up tomorrow morning. God, give us the strength to call on you each moment. When we're consumed with doubt and disappointment, God, will you help us to remember to have faith in you? But it's not about our faith. It's our faith in your great faithfulness. Now, maybe for some of you today, today's your day. Your life is not okay, and you've been trying to do it all on your own, and you've drifted away from God, and you're tired, and you're worn out, and you're finally at a point where you're like, God, I'm surrendering it all to you. You want to experience His amazing love and compassion in your life in spite of the circumstances you have. So today, if you're ready to say, I need you in my life. I need your forgiveness. I need your grace. I need your presence. I need your love. I'm ready to turn from my sin and turn towards you. If that's you today, I invite you to share this prayer after me. In fact, it's not just a prayer that we pray by ourselves, but we pray it in community together. But for some of you, today it means so much more because it's your first day or it's a day in which you've drifted back to God instead of away. And so I invite you to simply repeat this prayer after me, but it's your prayer. Repeat after me. Jesus, thank you for loving me. No matter what. I give my life completely to you. Jesus, save me from my sins. Make me brand new. Touch my life. Fill me with your spirit so I could know you, serve you, and follow you for the rest of my life. My life is not my own. Today I give it to you. Thank you for new life. Now you have mine. Jesus' name I pray.